Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972 with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hey, Guy, how you doing? I'm good. We've got another Gary. Yeah, we up. have. Yeah, I'm going to get confused now. Um, this guest, I actually told um, Billy Corgan that we had Gary Newman. And uh, and he said, and I'll probably t- don't. He said, I- "I'm not speaking to you." Because I will forget. He says, "Oh, please send my love." He's such a wonderful person and a great artist. I hope he's doing well. And I think you know that's that's the thing about this guy. He he's uh, he he really um, he's very very influential, especially incredibly if- influential. Yeah, and, and especially more so in the fullness of time. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And um, so should we, should we get him on? Should we? Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. It's, it's get good at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hello, mate. How you doing? Sorry, I had to answer the door. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's a shame about your internet, but it... it, 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 it oh, hang on. Someone's talking to me on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's this is the thing you see it's technology it made me laugh though because you were the you were the guy so ahead of the game in technology man machine Do you know all, all that thing about me being in charge of technology it was a total lie i i was blagging it all the way through when i when i started i'd never seen a synthesizer before you know and so i start doing i'd, I'd made two albums and i still didn't own one so my whole knowledge about synthesizers was based on a few hours in the studio on this day and then a few hours on that day because we couldn't afford to rent them for very long so we'd get them in have a three-hour block and then they go again so I, I my total summary my total amount of time on a synthesizer by the time we got to my third or fourth album I think was about 12 hours or do you know what I mean? So you didn't have the 10,000 hour thing. No, no, people were, I was, I was doing interviews in technology magazines about envelopes and filters. I don't know what the fuck I was talking about. <laughs> what was the, what was the, because yeah, you said there is you, because you turned up at the studio to record, right? And there happened, there was a synth there. And yeah. so you, but can you remember yeah. what the synth was? Yeah, Mini Moog. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, real big, simple thing, you know, but you know, no presets to all dials and switches. I suppose it's true to say that every great synthesizer guy goes to the opening of an envelope, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, th- that was at the door. That was the joke that was just delivered. I've used it. Um, yeah, it's probably the most dad joke we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty dad, actually. Pretty, that was pretty dad. The thing is with your sound is that it was really analogue, wasn't it? You weren't dealing with computers so much. You weren't programming in the early days. Were you actually playing? Yeah, it wasn't available. You know, well, I, I found that first synthesizer in 1978. So 
you know, I don't even think they, I don't even think they had video then. I remember buying a video, my first video machine in '79. Even you know, we were doing things before sampling came along. We were walking around with little recorders, you know, the old Ewan machines, and, and um, you know, recording all these weird noises and then putting out to tape, and then making these bizarre tape loops that went around the studio to. You know, with like thimbles and pencils to try to hold it together oh, yeah. <laughs> to, to make sort of a beat out of the the noise so it was really but it was really fun you know it was it was it felt creative and inventive and and um you you felt like you were doing something that hadn't been done before you know not not to that degree anyway and it was great it was exciting i, I, I really enjoyed it but then as the machines came along and the technology got better it became much simpler and much faster to do these things and I still love it very much, but that kind of pioneering sort of spirit it had right at the beginning that 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 faded away fairly quickly. You know, which is a good thing because you know you could you could do more, you can make better quality stuff, and it was faster. You you know you could have more ideas on the record and so on. But um, in in a way, I I, I sort of I was slightly missed that that first year or two because it was really exciting. It's a radiophonic workshop sort of element. Yeah, oh, well, they yeah. were amazing. Yeah, they were. <laughs> Because well I think what people kind of miss that looking, you know, especially young kids who, who listen to your stuff, who are so used to programming stuff up, is a lot of what the early Tube Up, well, Gary Newman stuff would have was was real musicians. I mean, you know, Sed Sharpley, who came in and joined you later as a drummer, is an amazing drummer. You know, this wasn't electronic drums just playing like a robot. This had real feel, and of course, uh, you know, Billy Curry. I, th I think part of the reason for that was because of the way I found synthesizing. Tuby Army was actually a three-piece punk rock band. You know, not a very good one, but that's that's what we got signed up as. You know, we were, you know, we were sort of like a more pop-punk crossover, I guess, really. But we went to the studio as a conventional band to make a conventional album, and I found a synthesizer there and then. And I was so enthused by the synthesizer and what it could do and the noises, I decided to make that the direction of the record instead but we had, but the songs were punk songs written on guitar and so the, the process really was to was to graft on some electronic stuff on top of what we already had and take that back to the record company so it was like a pseudo punk electro album really but that's why where people like Human League and, and Kraftwerk and so on had gone for a far more genuinely synthetic route if that's the right way of putting it. I, I, I ended up with a, a half half and half. You know, I still had a drum, I still had guitar, still had bass, but I had all this other stuff on top of it as well. And, and I think quite by chance, because you know, that was no great clever design of mine, that was just lucky. I think that that's what gave it the, the mix that made it successful to begin with, because it was different enough to, for people to consider it to be this brand new thing and how you know, weird and wonderful is that, but familiar enough for people to be able to relate to it and get into it. And so I, I, I really do feel lucky that not, not only did I find a synthesizer on that day at kind of just the right time, but the way I found it and the way it mixed with the sound that we had made it acceptable to a degree that what other people, you know, the other people were, you know, Human League and all Christian movies and people like that were way ahead of me, Ultravox especially, way well, ahead of me. Ultravox, because you know? funny, we talked to Mitch the other, other week and, and he was saying the funny thing is how much of a conventional band they were, they had bass and drums and guitar and quite a lot of guitar as well. And that was Ultravox with a question, with a, an exclamation mark, wasn't it? Do you remember the That's early it. Ultravox? Yeah. Had, yeah. Had a, yeah. A, it was like a musical. Ultraviolet, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so, Gary, the thing is that we, we all know that, you know, the thing of you coming to the studio and, and discovering the synth, but what about before that? Because you're talking about, is, was that you saying that's your second album? I mean, what, no, first no that was your first album, but what, what had led you there? What, what was your original musical epiphany? When I was really little, you know, I can't remember for sure, but no, sort of four or five, maybe, really little. I was watching TV with my mum and dad and, and Hank Marvin was on Those Shadows. Uh, and he we was doing his... Hank was on yeah, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it all started with him. Uh, and it started because I, I'd never seen or I'd never been aware of an electric guitar before. And I was watching him do his little dance thing, you know, and, and playing. And, and I could see that the guitar was plugged in and it had a switch. I think it was a Stratocaster. It was. It had a switch Red Stratocaster, it. yeah. That's it. Um, you know, so dials. And I, I was blown away with that, wow, an electric guitar. 
Yeah, and I just and I wanted one. So and I got absolutely absorbed and obsessed by music at that point. My mum my and dad bought me a guitar, but they bought me a, an acoustic one, a little junior size acoustic one. So I remember I, I either tied some string to it or I sellotaped some string to it so it looked like a, a cable. <laughs> yeah. and, and that was it. And, and it started It started with that. So in, in a way, my, my introduction to music in general was more technology driven than it was musically driven. You know, it was the guitar itself that fascinated me. And so, you know, even even then, you know, many years later, my my mum and dad bought me an electric guitar. Eventually, a really weird one with a sort of jack plug that I've never seen before or since. Not not the jack plugs you've never. That's what it was. A really weird contraption. Well, those weird things you get from used to get from Tandy from Radio like, Shack. I don't know. It's like a weird <laughs> center spike in it. Anyway, and, but I didn't I didn't play it so much as I would sort of put it on a stand plug it into some different guitar pedals and then I would hit it and then all this noise I came out and then I'd twiddle with the pedals and make these weird That's complete. sounds. Lou Reed made a double album doing that, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Did he? Is that that metal machine music yeah, yeah, I mean, it's all, all right. <laughs> it was brilliant, you know, and, and I, I thought... Hang oh, on, I pedals, just... that's very advanced. I mean, this we're talking about, this is what, early 70s? Oh, know. yeah, there were... There were... Yeah. What pedals did you have? I mean, oh God knows, man. God knows. <laughs> I'm so old now; I'd never remember anyway. You're roughly we're roughly the same age. You know, Bowie, Mark Bolan, has to have, and Roxy Music. All those guys came into your life, surely. I mean, uh, Dave, uh, no, uh, Mark Bolan, T Rex. Yeah, yeah I, I was never that never that mad about Roxy Music, strange enough. But I liked it, but I, it was never the big thing for me. Uh, T Rex was the one. Yeah. Uh, in fact, before that, I was a Monkeys fan. I was into the Monkeys. Uh, we had a group in our street called uh, <laughs> Group. We, we had a, a group of mates in our street that we called we called ourselves Monkey Juniors, and we would go into people's houses, put records on, and, and mime to them for money. You know, we get a couple of shillings and go buy sweets with it. So. <laughs> So that was, that was my introduction to show that's, business. That's how it's, it's yeah. right. And what's changed? <laughs> yeah. Not a lot. A of pop <laughs> the first one of the first shows I ever did, we mimed to stay with me by the faces, me and a bunch of blokes in front of a load of kids who screamed at the end. They thought it was amazing. <laughs> we were doing it for our, our own mums and dads. It was really sad. Yeah. But it was it was good. I loved it. But it, it, after that, after the see monkeys, now that would be filmed. There'd be record of that, and it would be yeah. terrible. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? Last night, my my eldest, my, in fact, my eldest and my middle kid write songs. My eldest is just uh, seventeen now, and she's furiously writing during pandemic. And she wrote another. I think she did two yesterday. You're prolific as well. Um, and we were in her room last night just before we went to bed. You know, and I'm listening to the. Th- listen to what she's doing and I'm trying to help her with logic and so on. And my, my wife's there behind us saying, this, no, this is for the documentary when it comes out. So you're, you're even thinking that way now, aren't you? <laughs> Filming your kids. But I guess, you know, your sound, that sound of your voice, that's that's something else that was very, very unique to you. And, and when did you discover that? Because I know you were in a band called Mean Streets and mm. I actually saw Mean Streets twice or Mean Street twice, but really? I don't think you're in it. They were a, f- a friend of mine called Neil Matthews, who's a photographer. He took us to see the band because a mate of his called Henry was in it. Henry Sabini. Yeah. So he I used to look like David Bowie. Yeah, he was very handsome kid. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, and and we went to see it, but I think you, I, I had no recollection of you. So maybe you weren't in the band by that point. No, no, I was. I got rid of me fairly early on. Actually, I turned up to a rehearsal to find someone else singing. That's when I knew I wasn't in it. <laughs> 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 nobody, nobody actually told me, you know, they're too gutless to actually say you're not in it anymore. So I stroll up, we were rehearsing in Chelsea somewhere. I turn up to that and I can hear someone singing, my songs. <laughs> that was a bit annoying. And then, uh, yeah, then I was out. Uh, that was, yeah, that was horrible actually, because they're all my mates from school. You know, it, it was really upsetting at the, at the time. I was really, really hurt by that. Of course. When had you started writing? Uh, again, when I was really, really little, you know, t- awful, awful copies of uh, 
what Mark Bowler was doing. I wrote one called Warriors from Marns, A-R-N-Z. Yeah, it was as shit as that. <laughs> but most of them were worse than that. <laughs> awful, awful. Talk, no, uh, lyrics about flowers coming out of antelope's elbows. and. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. Is that the kind of thing he would have written about unicorns, didn't he? Well, yeah, yeah, because of Mark Bowler, yeah, all of, all of that. Yeah, you would never have guessed in a million years that I'd ever have done anything worthwhile based on that early stuff. It's utter shit. <laughs> we've, all got, we've all got those. Yeah, we've got, everyone's got them. Yeah. Everyone's got them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, but let's, let's, we, we, need to, we need to hear more about, about how Tube Army formed, I guess, because, I mean, that's, when you think about it now, that's a total punk name, isn't it, Tube Army? What happened was, after I got thrown out of Mean Street, and the, the general reason seemed to be that I was taught too much at the front because I wrote the songs and I was a singer and, you know, so, but no, but nobody else wrote songs. So what can you do? You know, anyway. Um, <laughs> so after that, I thought, Oh God, that didn't work out. But I, I wanted experience. So I thought oh, I just go and join a band, a little a rhythm guitarist. And I just get at the back, do some gigs, just get some experience and find my way with it. And then, um, you know, sort of step up a bit later on when I was more comfortable with it. I answered some ads in um, Melody Maker, I think. And I went to went for an audition with a band called the the Lasers, and they wanted there was a three piece wanted to wanted to be a four piece with a rhythm guitarist. First rehearsal was done at my mum and dad's house, a little corner room that they had. And um, during the rehearsal, I noticed that they didn't do any of their own songs. You know, so I said, "Why? Well, you know, why is that? Why can't you do covers?" And he said, "Well, we do, we don't write songs." I said, "Oh, I do." You know. I've got loads. <laughs> um, and so I played them some of them uh, and then we started, so we started doing those songs instead and, and Paul couldn't sing them because it was in the wrong key for him. So I started singing them. At the end of it, I said, why are you called the something? Everyone's called the something, you yeah. know? So he said, well, what ideas have you got? I said, well, I, I said, I'm writing a book. I'm writing a, a load of short stories and that's called Tube by Army. So how about that? He went, all right then. So at the end of that first rehearsal of me supposedly being in the background, I changed the name, became a singer, and they were doing all my songs. And I hadn't even intended that. I wasn't trying to power grab or anything. I really wasn't. I was just, you know, I just said what I thought. They were around your house, though. <laughs> we were in my house, yeah. <laughs> my mum did have a large gun. Yeah. <laughs> no, nothing. But it really was. Honest to God, it, it, I know how it, it sounds as if I was trying to run everything from day one you know I, I honestly i swear to you i really wasn't I, but i was so hang on was, so, was, so was tube wait you said so tube way army was a title of a book of short stories yeah so yeah. it was is there a story called tube way army no they're, they're oh. actually all, all those stories ended up being an album called replicas which i would do the oh yeah 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 year or two later but it was all the same stuff that, that the book was from and what was it who the, who's the author that influenced you on those philip k dick Right. Um, uh, of course. As in all science fiction stuff. Oh, just also, sorry, just to start because th this is in Heathrow, right? Did did you live around Heathrow? Nearby, yeah, pl a place called Raysbury. Up on Raysbury. Of course, JG, JG Ballard lived around there. Did he? Didn't he? Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, because he, he loved he loved the whole thing of being near an airport and the whole thing. You know, it fitted his whole shtick. Oh, I didn't know that. And I was wondering if that influenced your love of flying. I no, the flying thing. I, I'm not. I'm not sure exactly where, but when I uh, when I was little, my I used to go stay at my nan's house. Um, my nan was r really, really close to Heathrow Airport, and they used to have a cross runway. But they've only got two now. But they used to have a third one, and she was quite close to the end of the third one. So I would lay out in the garden. I'd put a blanket down, and lay out on the floor, just looking up at this gap between where her house was and you know, where the next house was. And they were coming directly over the top. And this is obviously way back when they were still really noisy and really smoky. And you'd hear them coming. And it was just, it was amazing. I, I would sort of think of dragons and all this stuff. And they would be screaming and roaring. And then they'd appear. And, and there was smoke pouring out. And then they were just beautiful and awesome. And it was just so impressive. And you, they were so close, you could actually look up into them, see all the, the hydraulic cables, and you know, I mean, really close, they were right on top of you. And I loved it. And I think my my love for aeroplanes comes from that. You know, they've always been beautiful, powerful, intimidating, monstrous things to me. And, I, and I, that desire to want to be able to control them 
has been with me ever since, you know, and and it, it ran, if, if anything, it, it ran ahead of my interest in music, but certainly, you know, parallel to it. But also, what's quite interesting to you say about the path on the sound, do you think that might have actually been one of the things that made the synth appeal to you, the power of that sort of big machine noise? It is, it is quite possible. I mean, I haven't never thought of that, but yes. I mean, I do love sort of low-end, growly, yeah, the yeah. thing that really blew me away about the synthesizer to begin with wasn't just the sound of it, it was the fact that you could feel it. You know, the room was shaking, the low end yeah. was so powerful that, yeah. and I, you know, I've said a million times that you, you felt the sound as much as you heard it. So yeah, I, I guess there is a clear connection. I said, why have I never thought of that before? Did you, did you grow up on that's, your- That's why we're here. That's why we're here, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> the fee will come soon, don't worry. <laughs> you um, <laughs> That first album, obviously, we all know, you know, was not your big hit. But you did a you did a commercial. You did it. Ended up doing a jingle, didn't you, around that time? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Lee Cooper jeans. That was that was funny actually. I I I'd done the first album, but it wasn't out, and the publisher was playing it in his office one day apparently. And, and the man next door was was with an ad agency, and he was doing an advert for Lee Cooper jeans. So they was going to do a song called "Don't Be a Dummy," I think it was. And um, heard my voice on the on my album. And said, "Oh, that sounds that's sort of like that alieny kind of thing we're looking for." Because it was all a midwitch cuckoo advert, and everyone had white hair, green eyes. I think I can't remember. I might have been black and white. Oh, it's probably the police they wanted for it then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I actually watched it on YouTube the other day. It's up there. It's in it's in color. It's very sort of. It is a color, is it? Oh, I mean, it actually looks more eighties than seventies. It's already you know the robot type kids and yeah i got 40 quid for doing that and i thought i was on i was on the dole at the time i was getting i think 12 quid a week on the dole so 40 quid was like wow yeah <laughs> this music business is brilliant you can make good money so i was loving it and then they they wanted to change the the it wasn't my lyric they they wanted to change the lyrics so they got me back in to do it again another 40 quid yeah i was rolling in it i thought it felt like it sold out yeah. No, no, no. I would have sold my soul, mate. But, no, no. <laughs> but what did happen was, uh, that, do you remember that song, Blue Jeans? Uh, yes, David Jeans. Dundas. Yeah. David Dundas, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I was, it was around about that time when, when adverts were, were making hit singles. Yeah. So I thought, well, here's an opportunity. So I said to this same man that, that heard my voice, you know, would this be a single? And he was such a shit. He, was, he made me feel that big. You know, absolutely squashed me down and, uh, oh, you arrogant, horrible man. And then a few months later, I'm number one. And, and that same man come back to me and said, would you mind awfully doing a vocal? I said, you can fuck right off me. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Yeah, so they you're got, right. they... yeah but it's 45 quid now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was one of the, yeah, yeah I know vengeance is petty. You know, and for the more small-minded amongst us, but it's great sometimes. No, yeah. we've all we've all got one of those. Everyone's got at least one of those sort of sad yeah, back got, somewhere. I've got several. I'm, I am really quite petty. Because there's a split going on right now, isn't there? It's not. It's no longer just two by army. You're you're thinking of it being Gary Newman. Yeah. When, when I when I found the synthesizer and the and the direction of the music sort of changed dramatically, I, I didn't want it to be a punk band anymore. So I wanted to drop the two by army name. My feelings at the time were that, that punk was on its way out and I didn't want to be dragged down with it. You know, I didn't want to be associated or, or considered a punk band, even though we hadn't had any success, but that was my thinking because I thought punk was on its way out and I wanted to disconnect from the whole thing. I had this new sort of music, you know, so what better time to sort of reinvent yourself? <laughs> I had done anything at all and I'm still thinking about reinventing <laughs> yeah. myself. Yeah. yeah, maybe invent. <laughs> Big head, yeah, yeah, yeah invented. <laughs> but that was my thinking anyway. So I had this album and I go to Beggar's Banquet and it wasn't the album that they wanted at all. They were really quite upset with what I'd taken to them. But I was, I was absolutely convinced that electronic music was coming and it was going to be the big new thing. At that moment, I thought I was pretty much the only person that discovered it, which was really naive and stupid, but I, I did. You know, I didn't know about Human League and Ultravox at that point. I, I just didn't know about them. So I was unaware of, of how ahead of the game they were compared to me. There's a big scene going on. I mean, you know, that, that but it's well, everyone did, always... Gary, did, you had your synth by then, didn't you? 
Had you? <laughs> um, we got our first synth in 1979, but it was before Gary's record had, had come out. Yes. In fact, I mean, we, I digress now, but I do remember you turning up at the Blitz and this would have been late 79. So I think you'd already had your first hit. And I remember being really envious of you at that point. You know, do you remember going to the Blitz Club? I do, actually. Um, I do. Yeah. Um, that was Steve Strange's thing. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, 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 um, and I remember being, you know, we were all a bit, oh, crap, he's done it first, you know. But it was yeah, that. Loads of people, loads of people thought that, and I, 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 I absolutely understand that. I think, I think Andy McCluskey from OMD sort of put it best when he said, "I was this Johnny Come Lately figure," you know, and every, you know, other people have been doing it and and working really hard with it, um, and I come along, stumble across it by accident, think I'm the first one to find it, you know, and a few months later, I'm number one. And OMD supported you on tour, didn't they? On that first one, yeah. yeah. I actually asked Daniel Miller, and Daniel was busy setting that mute at the time and didn't, didn't want to do it. Um, but OMD were you know, very close second. I loved OMD, actually. Um, but you know, I, had, I had to fight with beggars to get that first album out. They, they didn't want it. They, they wanted a punk album. And so when I come back with this electronic thing, you know, they're really, really not happy. And, but I, I, like I said before, you know, I was really absolutely convinced that it was a, it was going to be huge and that you know and I actually said to beggars you know I can't be the only one to know about this you know there must be other people <laughs> little knowing how many there were and how far ahead they were of me but you know there must be other people and if they haven't found it yet they will do soon because this is amazing what this machine can do is amazing and it's going to change everything and I said and we have a chance of being right at the front end of this and you want me to go back and make a a punk album, which is dead on its feet. They said, this is what we have to do, this. And it got so heated that they, they had us, it's only Martin that runs it now, but there was another director at the time. And me and him actually stood up proper. It was really heated and lots of shouting. It was Martin that stepped up and said, well, that's just, no, let's go for it. Let's give it a try. So bless him. That, you know, without him changing his mind at that moment, I've no idea what would have happened, but but equally, so you know, as it would be for beggars, you know, beggars was built on the back of that replica album, so you know, it, it was a good decision for all of us. I think. I still remember seeing the first time I saw the ad. You had it was a little banner ad at the bottom of the page in NME for that one with the picture of you in the room with the front, you know, it's the Our Friends Electric thing. And I remember, and it was really striking, but it was, but the fact that it was such a small ad, I always remember thinking, well. <laughs> That's all beggars could afford, obviously. Yeah, well, yeah. right? So um, I didn't even know you'd done that. <laughs> <laughs> didn't but, yeah, expect anything, you know. Uh, do you remember writing our friends electric? Was the, yeah. that moment in your life? I do, yeah. I, I because it, it was actually two songs. I, I had the, the the main sort of do 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 do. I had that bit, and I couldn't think what to do with it. I had another song, which is more like a ballad that I was working on, which is uh, do, 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 which was a bit slower when I was writing it. And I've been on them for a while and I was really frustrated because I couldn't think how to finish either of them. And I was playing one of them and, and then, yes, oh God, I can't think. And I went straight to the other bit to start working on the other song and realised that they worked together. And it was just luck, really. And also, our friends Electric didn't quite go the way it ended up being. Yeah, they did it. Now that, do, do, that bit. I was playing it back one day and I hit a wrong note on the piano and I thought, oh, that sounds better. I'll keep that mistake in, you know? So my, my big groundbreaking single was actually two songs that I couldn't think of how to finish off and bad playing. <laughs> that dirt, I mean, that invented a million robotic dances, didn't it? That, that one mistake, you know? Because the thing with all those early singles, Garrett, is just how much instrumental there is in them. Where yeah. you know, there's, there's so mm. much, you know, which is actually quite, Quite proggy, really. What's your mouth now? We say it at least once every episode. Yeah, we have to have a prog. <laughs> we have to have a prog reference. Sorry, but, but you would not get that on the on the radio these days. It wasn't no, enough no, vocal. No. You couldn't uh, you couldn't dance to it. It was five and a quarter minutes long. Way too long. It, I, I kept quiet at the time, but it's actually about robot prostitutes. You know, BBC would never, they didn't play it anyway, but you know, it never got on top of the pops if they'd have known what it was about. Do you know that's, now, now that would be the name of a band. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it would. Really, but, oh, that must be said because the pocket on that song is amazing. It is actually from a kind of muso perspective. Is that your uncle or was that said? 
Who was on the, on, on the track? On the recording, it was my uncle, my uncle Gerald, Jess. Um, but when we got to actually perform it, when it, you know, by the time it had come out, Gerald had already um, gone back to gone back to work, and Cedric was in. So it was Cedric on the TV and on the on the because the one video for it. the very famous Old Grey Whistle Test you did, which was exactly the same week as doing Top of the Pop. I yeah, think that, that was. A- I mean, you either did one or the other in those days, didn't you? But you did both, and Cedric's yeah. playing in that. And, and of course, you you know, as I said earlier with Billy Curry, you know, we had Midge on the show a few weeks ago and, you know, Midge, or, or last, what was it, a couple of weeks ago, and Midge was saying what shocked him about Billy was he was playing the synthesizer through all these guitar pedals, you know, and that growling sound. I mean, yeah. and, and yeah. It, was, it was the musical ability of the group. Again, I was really lucky, you know, when I auditioned um, for keyboards, only two people turned up. One of them was Chris Payne, who got the job, who turned out to be brilliant. Uh-huh. Um, and the other one was a Frenchman who had some stomach bug and kept going off to the toilet to have a shit all the way through the audition. It had about four shits in three songs. You know. <laughs> this episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. So, so he didn't uh, do it. Or it was a junkie. I mean, come on. No, no, no. You could, <laughs> you could tell he was in trouble because there was other signs. Of it. Right. He, he couldn't see. And he would, he would go, like, he would bend right down to the keyboards like that, about two inches away. How can you play like, like that, you know? Anyway, so he did, get, but Cedric was the same thing. You know, we had one day auditioning dramas, about four or five people turned up. What one man said, these songs are too hard. Well, that's not a way to get through an audition, is it? You know? <laughs> oh, fair enough, mate, you're in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good attitude. And another bloke turned up straight from a building site and he had all his gear, yeah. Big boots on that you're covered in cement. I remember him really clearly. Gary, who was managing you? For Christ's sake. <laughs> oh, man. Where, where did he put oh, the ad? Thames Valley Trader or something? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, well, he got his name off a plumber from the Yellow Pages. So <laughs> yeah, I, did. Uh, I did. The, the main thing is the way you looked and the way you sang. I mean, obviously, Bowie was a big influence on that that nasal English voice that you, 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 you took on and you did it so brilliantly and made it your own. Where was all that coming from for you? The, the voice is what it is. You know, I do have that horrible nasal thing. But it was ex- it's expressive though, isn't it? In oh a- man. I've, I've no, no, it's, my... per- it's, the per- it's your voice. It's perfect voice. Don't say uh, horrible, Gary. Don't. No, it's not. I've, I've not liked my voice since the day I started. That's been my one sort of, not my one, it's been one of my many <laughs> if problems. You'd come, out, <laughs> you'd come out and sung like George Michael over our friend's electric, no one would have liked it. You know? <laughs> if I could have come out and sung like someone else, I would have done it. I would have done it. I've, I've, my voice has been a double-edged sword from song one, you know, I know it's different and I know it has a sound of its own, which is a very, very desirable thing usually, but <laughs> the other side of it is, you know, I don't like it very, very much. I'm, I'm more at ease with it now, to be fair, but in the early days, I, I, I did not like it at all and I was really embarrassed by it. So I, I didn't choose to sing that way. I, I would much rather have had a much better, stronger, richer 
voice and the thin little thing that I was born with. But it's got uh, better as I've got, as I got older. But the, the uh, whole image thing was because yeah. of the... Remember saying that the, the, the songs came from stories? The image was a character from one of the stories. Uh, I think it was a Mac man, half machine, half man. And so that's the, the idea behind the, the whole sort of look and the image of it. On the album, on the replica's album sleeve, I am dressed as a Mac man. The whole idea of being an image, you know, a very image conscious artist. I, I can't remember that being a, a big part of my thinking at the time. So a part I of it, it I think it really, really worked because it was the it was a kind of logical step on from punk. If punk was about being disenfranchised and being, you know, not like the rest of society, then this was a sort of futuristic version of where that might end up. And I think it really appealed to young kids who maybe weren't open about their emotions who 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 wanted style but had anger as well you know i think it ticked all yeah. those boxes and and i think that's the, that was the appeal of what you did uh, yeah it's quite possible actually i mean i i, I got asperger's as well and so although the the obvious signs of that again of you know they're far less it's far less noticeable now than it was when i was younger because you you know you, you sort of learn to identify the, the things that are more asperger's-y as you grow up and you can you know, find sort of mechanisms of getting around it. So I'm I'm far less noticeably Asperger's now than I used to be. But back then it was it was really really strong. Plus, you know, I'm I'm barely out of my teens, and so I still had a lot of that teenage angst and that feeling of being misunderstood and you know all all that stuff that my kids are going through now. You see things slightly differently, and I think you write about experiences slightly differently, and maybe your experiences themselves are slightly different but they're connecting with a whole generation of people that are feeling at least something similar. You know, you're, you're able to express it. And so, I, I, you know, there were, there were so many lucky things that, that came together in that, in that year, you know, the, the, the lyrics, the, the music, the, the synthesizer, the, you know, the, the image of every, everything, you know, the, the, the timing of the world, perhaps, you know, the fact that punk, I think was dying and people were looking for whatever that next thing was going to be. It had just the right amount of resistance for the media to make it seem like a cool thing for kids to get into. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm not very good at analysing these things. I'm just, I'm just glad it happened. But I do think that there was an awful lot of lucky timing, and an awful lot of things thrown into the mix that were, that were really nothing to do with me. I was just along for the ride for a lot of it. I no, I wrote the song and I, and I came up with the image. And it was my voice. It was my. Life. I know. I understand that I, I had a big part of it, but I mean, even getting on top of the pops, you know, we got on top of the pops because they were doing that thing called bubbling under at the time, where a, a record that wasn't in the chart but was showing some sort of movement outside of it, they would bring that you know, person for, absolutely from obscurity. They would give them that big shot. I don't know how long they did that for, but it wasn't that long. Well, we got that, you know, and the reason we got that was because a record company. Um, put out 20,000 picture discs of Arthurine's Electric. That in itself was an absolute miracle. I, I'd sold nothing before that. And yet they get, they did 20,000 picture discs on a completely unknown band doing a really weird sort of music with a single that didn't appear to have any chance whatsoever of getting into the chart because it didn't tick any of the boxes. And yet they did it. That was amazing. That got us into the lower reaches of the top 100 or something. That got it noticed by Top of the Pops. And then the other bit of luck was they had two that week that were, that were bubbling under. There was me, Tube Army, and I think it was Simple Minds was the other one. They had a song out at the time. And then whoever decides at Top of the Pop who it's going to be thought Tube Army was a more interesting name than Simple Minds. Wow. And, and that's how we got it. So, you know, when you talk about becoming successful, my, my success was so lucky with so many people that I've, I, I would never know who they were that made decisions that changed my life. You know, to come out at the end of that and, and think that I'm special in some way is, is just fucking ridiculous. You know, I, I, was, I was a part in a much, much bigger thing where a huge amount of luck was involved. So what you should do at the end of all that, if you come out of that and you're number one, you should feel our soul lucky for the rest of your life. <laughs> From listening to you, Gary, I can see you're very, you're, you've got a lot of, um, you can be very self-critical and maybe there's an element of insecurity like there is in all of us. And yet you weren't scared to, to take your, put your name forward as the front man, to produce the records, to, to do all of that design that Guy's talking about. 
That that must have been a you know you must have been driving yourself insane with fear. Yeah, I know. I was. It was. It's. It, it's the strange mix of absolutely minimal confidence coupled with an, an absolute conviction that it will be done your way, or, or it won't be done at all. And now, how do you, how do you? I've spent my whole life trying to figure that out. I, I'm not hugely different to this day you know I've got more confidence now because I've been doing it forever but making an album I still find making an album a very very stressful thing you know one of the reasons that the gaps between them has got longer is because I, I'm scared to start I, I push them back I push them back I find other things to do and you know, until I absolutely have to start on a record because I know what's coming this whole emotional fear you know I I genuinely feel that being in the studio you know you'll have four weeks of not much you know painstaking inching forward progress for one day of euphoria you know one day where it all just seems to come together and it's it's just amazing and it's worth the four weeks of utter terrified shit that you've had before that but then after that day you know you've got another four weeks you know it's it's a very uh, it is a tortuous program. I don't mean to sound like the, you know, the tortured artist. I'm not trying to say that. But I do not go into a studio expecting to, to do great things. You know, I go in there knowing that it's going to be a painful, long slog to, to, to find enough things that you're happy with that you will eventually put out. And then there's that period when the album is done where I can't listen to it. I mean, I, I'm so nervous about it. And I really do believe that you, you know you should sink or swim on each album you do. I don't believe in you know having a long career based on something you did years ago. So I've always been aware of that. That I cannot, I would feel really un, uh, unreal, you know, trying to live on cars and offering to that shit for the rest of my life. But, you know, um, I've always wanted to try to make better albums and better albums. So each one is a real challenge. But when it's done, and you have that period in between it being mastered and when it comes out. I, I can't, I can barely listen to it. You, you know, I, I just have to get away from it because all you can hear is what you should have done better. No, yeah, yeah. All you can hear, isn't it? You, you know, oh man, I, I knew that chorus was shit. I knew it could have been better, <laughs> you know? And now you can't do anything about it. So all of that, you know, that realization that this this is it, that that haunts me for a little bit. And then it, it, it is about a month, sometimes sometimes two. And then I'll, I'll I start to listen to it again because you're going to do interviews about it. And you have to remind yourself what the songs are about because you forget, you know. <laughs> and so you start to listen to it again and you've got to do the artwork and get the Because I do all the artwork as well for everything. So I've got to set out the lyrics. And so you got, you know, so you think, oh, and hopefully, usually I start to think, oh, it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm all right with it. But I'm always embarrassed. You know, if people, if you go on television, you know, they'll play one of your songs usually. I'm all, I can't watch that. You know, it's it's, it's genuinely embarrassing, and it, and it feels like you're being sort of artificially humble and all. But I, I find it all good because I same thing. Yeah. They, oh, no, you're too self-critical. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, but, yeah. yeah but that, I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, because it yeah. it drive it drives you being being really self-critical of really not thinking that you're as good as the success that you've had drives you to try harder. You know, you need to work at it. You need to be in there for a year, two years. Make that thing as good as it can be. Yeah. And the only, the only way you do that is by thinking, is by doubting everything that you do. Yeah. Doubt everything, you know, and then you might do something worthwhile at the end of it. And hopefully, you know, I, I've, I've done that more often than I haven't. But I've done some right shitters, I have. <laughs> I've done, I've, I did one in 92. That was just rubbish. So I even, right, what but so, yeah, I want to throw in a bit of a curveball here, Gary, which is, uh, well, I want to, which is that uh, something that ha I think something that happened to me, I believe the same thing happened to you. What turned out to be an incredibly life changing experience for me was when I was invited to Nassau to work with Robert Palmer. Oh, really? You did when, that? Yeah. When I, yeah. And that kind of basically set me off on my way. That, 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 was, oh, in 1980, that was in 1983. And you'd been out there a while before, but he raved 80. about you. He raved about you. You were so, such an influence on him. 
Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. lovely. He, Thank he did you. one of your tracks, didn't he? Yeah, Gary? yeah, we did. He did a song called "I Dream of Wires." I Dream of Wires, yeah. And then and he, and he played me these two songs, and he's play, he, and he was always pointing out the little bits you did, and I can tell exactly what it was of yours that he loved. It was the angularness. The, right. <laughs> I went. I went to Nassau to. I'd. I'd. Um, I'd gone to see him. He, I'd, I'd heard that he was doing a couple of my songs in his live set, so I went to see him. And I went with my mum and dad back then. And he had his mum and dad there. So it was, it was just like a... <laughs> you went to that. Yeah, you know, I, sorry, I have to stop just a second and say Gary Newman, you know, white, white-faced Gary Newman, you know, dare I use the word goth, in Nassau. You couldn't get more opposite, right? <laughs> <laughs> he was great. I went there to, to um, I went to Nassau to meet up with him. Um, and I had, I just finished my Telecon album, which was that my fourth, fourth one. And he said, I've got these other two things that I've been working on. And I said, I, and he said, I can't finish them. So he gave me an acoustic guitar and a little cassette player and put me into the, the, the house next door with Paul Gardner, who had joined the Lasers initially, right. and said, you know, see if you can figure them out. So I think it was called Style Kills and Found You Style Now. Kills, that's right. Yeah, Found You Now. Yeah. They, they were cool. We were in, I don't know, went on a B-side of Johnny and Mary, I can't remember, something. But well, yeah, yeah, already for, say for, the picture of you with an acoustic guitar in Nassau is so far removed from. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but Robert, I tell you, man, he was great. He, the oh, first time amazing. I ever saw, the first time I ever saw a step sequencer was was, was him. He had this thing that he, I don't even might have had it built with switches that would you know mm -hmm. do the. It was he was he was looking really, looking, really for looking. looking for clues is a, is, a, is a great sort of robotic kind of. But really? that that whole album, I think, came from from hearing you, Gary. That's when he completely switched to, and he went completely electronic for a while. And right. you know, it was you know, I always thought it was fascinating. But but there you go. No, no question, you were groundbreaking. I mean, all those kids who you know would have you know the Sex Pistols made them run out and buy guitars. You made them all run out and buy synthesizers. You know the eighth. But there was something else developing in the 80s. And it was obviously, you know, once we did our first, our first album was very electronic. And then we kind of went down a more funk route with chart number one. I'm talking about Spandau at the moment. And then obviously yeah. to the sound of what a lot of bands were doing in the in the 80s, which was a kind of, you know, jazzier, dancier kind of uh, sort of funkier sound. And you developed into that as well. But but it was a difficult period for you, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, you kind of lost what you you wanted to do. Oh, but there's something yeah, I, I want. There's something I want to interject with here, which is that after, yeah, because you did that album called Dance, right? Mm -hmm. But then um, you basically gave the world Pino Palladino. Yeah, he's great, isn't he? That's his first album. That's the he? first yeah. thing. Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, and he's all over it like a cheap suit. I mean, he's yeah, he is amazing. I yeah, where did where oh. did you find where did you find Pino? He was planned. He was planned with. Uh, well, it might have been Jules Holland actually, but in Dingles. The thing about Pino that was so brilliant and what changed the nature of the Assassin album, on the, on the album before I'd had uh, the, the dance album, Mick Khan had played on it from Japan. So I'd already gone into that fretless thing and I was really into that. Um, but what Pino did, Pino's bass lines were, were not underpinning so much as what you were doing. I, I felt that they were so strong that they, it made the bass a melody instrument. Yeah, no, very it much. I mean, yeah, so from so the center all, all the way through. Yeah. yeah, because I thought that's where it should be. So I mean, I I I, I decided as soon as Pino started playing and that album was underway, that just putting him in the back wasn't wasn't the right place for him, and it changed the nature of the songs that I was writing, and so I put him right up at the front. If you listen to anything on I Assassin, it's the bass that is the most prominent. Oh yeah, no, completely. Thing. I had a very nice run to it yesterday. Actually, it was it was fantastic. You got a lot of uh, quite a lot of hard time you got from the press in which I've never worked out to be honest. Uh, maybe we could just f think what that felt like to you and why that was. He was a young boy putting it, you know, ordinary working class kid doing it on his own. And he's, he's, he, the press just couldn't accept it. No, I mean, I, I get where I was, I get where I was coming from. I've already admitted to that. I was a, I was bitter and twisted at your success, uh, and the fact you did it first. Um, but I just, I've never been able to see that. There's one thing that it, that did occur to me just thinking about you yesterday, was that in those days bands were the thing. You know, you were a band, you were a gang. It's very hard to to have a go at a gang but it might be easier to have a go at someone who thought they were good enough 
to go out as a solo artist. And I wondered if there weren't many solo artists breaking then. And I wondered if that had anything to do with it. It's quite possible. You know, I think the fact that the music to a large swathe of the press was not considered real music. It wasn't guitar based, essentially. I think that that was a problem. I think the fact that I've been in the band and then went off on my own, I think that irritated people. Although I was getting shit when it was sort of Trilby Army, so it maybe not have been that. Um, I, I think I was the first sort of individual pop star, if you like, to come along post-punk. So I think there was still a lot of that sort of punk vibe going on that the press was still clinging on to, but the, the whole anti-hero thing. And I should have been more one of the people, perhaps. And I, and I just didn't understand the, the sensibilities at the time. I've never been good at that. You know, like I say, you've got Asperger's, you're not particularly good at sensibilities of people. You're in your own world and you- But also you it means you them. can't really do bullshit, right? No, you know, you really don't, yeah. you, you, don't you know, and you're, you are, you're just, you know, I'm not trying to say I'm the most honest person in the world, but it, it's a trait that you just say what you think, you know, and that's good or bad, really. And so, although I think the press <clears throat> were incredibly hostile, and they were, I do think that I, I, I didn't help. I really didn't, you know, I could have done so much more to have, to have smoothed that out a little bit, and I didn't, I just went out and blurted all this stuff out you know so and it was true um but i definitely said some things that were were, were um insensitive and and a little bit bullshit but unintentionally but bullshit uh, and i i think i you know i made a rod from my own back really so I've, I've got no um i've got no lingering grievances about that you know I, I think for a lot of it they genuinely didn't like the music fair enough you know they genuinely didn't like the way i was on stage fair enough yeah, didn't like the image. Fair enough. You know, it's a, if you really, really don't like something, well, that's fair enough. You know, you, there was an awful lot of over-the-top nastiness went with those opinions. You know, because I think the fact that it was so successful made them angry. And they, you know, if something becomes successful that you don't get, you know, I think it, I think it bothers you all the more. Mm. You know, and, and if you're in a position to write about it, then you're going to be particularly vicious and scathing because you just don't get it. And everyone that does is an idiot, and you need to tell them why they're an idiot for liking this idiot. I can honestly count the good reviews that I had in the first half a dozen albums on on two fingers. Yeah, and how did it did it get to you? How how badly did it get to you? Or... Well, this is where this is where again Asperger's is a blessing and why I would never want to not have it. Emotionally, we are different. We're able to, oh God, I shouldn't speak for all Asperger's people. The way, the way it works with me, Asperger's, is that I am able to put emotional things, setbacks in particular, I'm, I'm able to, to wrap them and tie a little piece of string around it and just put it to one side, because it gets in the way. Anything getting in the way of where you're going is a distraction. Yeah, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but do you think that that the sort of that obsession with you know a song like Metal say, which is about an android wanting to be a human, and that and that feeling of you know embracing the the, the robot is that was that something about you feeling different? It, it's quite possible. I mean, that certainly wasn't a conscious thing at the time, but there was so much of that sort of feeling in a lot of the stuff that I was doing then, this alienated individual, this person alone, you know, trying to face things, that it, I, now sort of looking back on it, it, it seems almost inevitable that, that that was definitely a part of what I was doing, that, that feeling of being isolated and outside. But that's every adolescent's thought, isn't it? That's why you speak to, you know, that's how music speaks to kids isn't it yes yeah I mean, i'm sure it is i i think when it comes to an individual there's a degree as to you know whether it's normal or beyond yeah. normal but that connection is there nonetheless yeah and it's and i think it's it's fair enough to then talk about you know this period when it, we got into the 90s late 90s when there was a definitely a reevaluation of of you as an artist Th and maybe those records that we're talking about and that alienation we're talking about was appealing to a lot of kids in america you know, who were listening to, to, to Cars and, and, and those songs. Um, and, of course, now they're all in bands. And, and it's, it's like Trent Reznor and, 
and and pe- and even I mean that is what's so amazing about you. There is a list of people who will just put you as their biggest influence. I need to you know from a- a- Africa Bambata to um you know well you did you did Nine Inch Nails last gig right wasn't it they invited you. I've done a few yeah. with, with, with Trent now. Yeah, I, I did one. I, the first one I did, well, I met him a long, long time ago. He, he'd, um, there'd been loads of, you know, he, he used to mention frequently about listening to Telecon, I think, when he was making Downward Spiral, you know, which is one of those legendary albums mm-hmm. now. So I was always really flattered by that and, and fascinated by him and what he did, because I love Nine Inch Nails. Uh, and then I got to meet him a really long time ago. Uh, and he'd done a copy, he'd, he'd done a cover version of my song, uh, Metal, actually, which uh, my, uh, Gary just mentioned. And, um, you know, I was sort of, I was really blown away by that, you know, and, that, and it, it really sort of started there. He was making the Fragile, actually, when I, when I met him, he was halfway through that. And Clint Mansell was there and Alan Mulder and, and, and other people. So it was, it was really, really cool, you know. Um, but then I didn't sort of see, have, see that, that much of him for, for a bit. Uh, and then uh, we, my wife actually, my wife did a really sneaky thing. I, I was this is two thousand nine, and and I was in a really bad place. I, I was being diagnosed with depression, and and I was not not doing well. Um, I had three kids by now, and blah blah blah. Uh, and she heard that Trent was playing metal on his tour. Um, was, I think that might have been that farewell tour that he was doing with Jane's Addiction. It was with Jane's Addiction. Um, so she wrote to Trent and she said, you know, without me knowing, and said, wouldn't it be good <laughs> when you get to London if Gary come on and did metal with you? You know, well, how cool would that be? And um, knowing that I would be horrified if, if I knew she'd done any such thing. Um, and Trent wrote straight back and said it would be great. And so I did that. That was amazing. The two songs, actually. And that's what I really sort of c- cemented. In fact, that, that particular gig was where... I'd had a really, um, my, my relationship with my old catalogue, my legacy part, I, I was really down on it. You know, I, I, I began to see Cars and Our Friends Electric and that era of songs as something that was really holding me back. You know, I, I was finding it impossible to get any sort of promotion for new stuff that didn't involve the old stuff. You know, I'd go on a radio show and they'd play Cars when I arrived and Our Friends Electric when I left. I wouldn't play the new thing I've gone there to talk about. And it just got really, mm-hmm. really frustrated. So I started to feel really negatively towards my own back, back catalogue. And it became a real deal, you know, a real thing. I, I, I didn't play cars on tour for about three or four years. And, you know, it really got really silly. But I, I felt really strongly about it. I had to get out from under the shadow that these that early success had created. So I'm waiting to go on at the O2 with Nine Inch Nails to do my little guest spot. And Trent does his introduction where he talks about all that stuff. He talked about Pleasure Prince of One Cars, and he talked about how important it was for, for when he was getting Nine Inch Nails together and trying to find a direction for Nine Inch Nails and how that played a pivotal role in it. So I'm standing there listening to all this amazing stuff, you know, from somebody that I really admired. And I thought how childish I'd been. If somebody like that can see that music as important, then why was I dismissing it you know, as the person that had written it? And so it actually changed, it changed the way I felt about it. You know, so I, I almost begrudgingly began to appreciate my own history. I still much prefer to think about what I'm doing next. When I'm playing live, the songs that I really enjoy are the new stuff, you know, which are probably true of everybody, I guess. And I, and I try to make sure that at least one third of the set is got all the old stuff in it. So it's still very much about what I'm doing now and where I'm going next and so on. But, you know, at least there's old stuff in it now, which there wasn't before. Yeah, there's a thing, Gary, although I was thinking, because I was telling my son that I was speaking to you, and of course his first exposure to you was through the Sugar Babes. Right. And, yeah. and I suddenly had this thought that actually, since your time, since Cars came out, every generation has got a big song in their catalogue, which, which, is, which is based around your song, Cars. There's been one like every few years. So every Good. generation since then has a Cars-based song. <laughs> you know what? The, 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 I've the been thing- asking to name them, actually. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I think you and I are probably the most sampled of, of the 80s. I mean, so many songs have, have been for Cars. 
and, yeah. for, and for our friends electric which i think that was the sugar babes one wasn't it that's right. right our friends electric yeah oh, i was our friends electric sorry yeah and i think it goes back to the sound i mean that sound is is phenomenal i mean that 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 you know and obviously which suddenly you know africa bambata said you 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 influence rap as well and and hip-hop hip-hop yeah yeah I, I was unaware of that completely and i did a I read something about Bambata. He was talking about playing pleasure principle songs. You know, when they were having these tenement gatherings before hip hop really took off, and it was it was sort of white electro music from Europe that they were right. playing. Yeah, craft you know, Yeah, it's a lot of craft work. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's where the beats were coming from. Yeah. And at one point, so I'm, I'm told that was the most sampled drum beat in in hip hop for a bit. Well, yeah, I don't know if that's true or not. Hang yeah. on, is that, is that your uncle from Essex? Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> Phil, no, films would be Cedric, actually. Oh, it was Cedric. Right. Okay. <laughs> and, and so, Gary, going on to your new stuff now, because you, what I noticed on your website is you've got this thing called Making Music Campaign. Yeah. And you were talking earlier about the fact that, you know, you dread making that album. Is this a way of getting you to do it? That you're saying, you tell me when to start. <laughs> it did give you a deadline, actually. That yeah, is true. It'd be no, but the reason for doing that 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 thing, I did a different one before that. Was was I? It was a little bit. Um, is it a little bit self pitying in a way? It, it, you know, when when a fan buys an album, usually they, they get this shrink wrapped finished thing, you know, and they are absolutely unaware of the pain that goes into it, you know, the, 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 the numerous bad days where you're absolutely tearing your hair up because it isn't going well when you're really frightened and, you, you know, and it's just, like I was saying before, it's this tortuous, you know, roller coaster experience making a record from, from beginning to end, you know, I mean, including the artwork and everything. And I wanted them to be more aware of that. I wanted them to appreciate what we go through when we make, it's not just sitting back in your big house, living the life of luxury, you know, churning out some tunes for a shit ton of money. There's a lot of effort and fear and worry and, and anxiety goes into these things. And it's a real dedication. Now you're in that dark little room, hour after hour, all through the night. You know, it's a lot of, it's not what they think. And I wanted them to know that. I wanted them to be, I wanted to be appreciated a bit more for what I did. You know, not just that thing. So that was it. So I would I would be in the studio. It was it wasn't a fly on the wall thing where I just put a camera up and watch, you know, yeah, well, it's like you can spend three or four hours doing the same thing, can't you? Until you sort of get it right, making yeah. minute little changes. How boring is that? You know, I'd rather watch grass grow, wouldn't you, than that? <laughs> No, interesting. Stop frame so animation. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, how dull is that? People think the studio is so exciting, don't they? They want to get in there and see what's going on. Nothing's going on, man. It's just me doing that <laughs> for, for hours until I, get, I accidentally hit the right one. Yeah. I feel That's that I feel that you're um that the American bands that fell in love with you and you suddenly realized where you know the Foo Fighters did, did, covered you so many inspired your reinvention really because you're sort of move into what might be called industrial rock right or you know that kind of style of music yeah it was american it came from your Amer american music fans i guess a lot of the exposure to it did for sure what, what happened was I, I i mentioned earlier i did a really shit album or two um the really really bad one was in 1992 it's called machine and soul and it was the best i could do at the time but it was rubbish you know um, it was so bad and my career was in such a bad place at that point. I had no record deal. I literally couldn't give tickets away. You know, you know, you stand out on the street and try to give tickets to people at a gig to pad it out and people didn't want them. You know, I literally couldn't give tickets away. It was as bad as that. And so I thought my career was pretty much over and I'd done this really terrible album and I just felt awful about everything. And I thought I was finished. And and I realized that I'd been corrupted by the business and I've been writing songs for years that were to try to get the career back on its feet, not things that I really loved. And, uh, and I really, really, really did sell myself. Um, and I, I realized that and I took a time out of it. And I, I'd, I'd met Gemma by then, my wife, who was really, really helpful and making me see things differently. And I, just, I realized that what had been a hobby had become this big business thing and it had, it had messed me up a little bit and so I wanted it to be a hobby again 
I wanted to just go back to writing songs for the love of writing songs with no thought about radio play and A&R men and record labels and all that shit. Just write songs because you love what you're writing. And I realized I hadn't been doing that for a very, very long time. And that changed everything because that changed my attitude and for what I was trying to achieve from the music. And Gemma encouraged me to listen to different things I hadn't heard before, things that were very successful, but I'd become very, very reclusive. And I hadn't really been listening to that much. And what I had been listening to was all the wrong things. And so I, the, the album that was most important back then wasn't really the big American rock bands at all, although they had a massive influence shortly after. It was that Songs of Faith and Devotion album that Depeche Mode did. I hadn't heard that when it actually came out. I was slightly late to it. Oh, I can't remember sure, but you know, you know I, I wasn't, I, I'd lost awareness of them actually. And Gemma, Gemma played me some of that. And, and that was amazing. I think you know, Alan, Alan Wilder was really important at that time to the band and their sound. And, and it was just, it was brilliant. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And that really, really helped shape the new direction that I, that I went into. And then I started to listen to Nine Inch Nails and all sorts of other things. And, and that helped enormously. Um, and those bands, you know, Trent, obviously, and Foo Fighters and Manson, you know, a little bit later. And, and I think their, their audience was being introduced to me. And the, the, the thing that was really lucky, if, if all of that, if all of what they were saying and their um, recognition had happened a couple of years earlier, and their audience turning on to me would have, would have been listening to that Machine and Soul album, which was shit. So it would have done nothing. That then I thought, what, what's Trent talking about? This is shit, you know. But it didn't. It happened a little bit later, where I'd got myself together. I got my songwriting together. I got this whole new direction worked out. The way I looked changed completely. I, I just got, I got myself together again in the way I had been when I first started. And so when all that recognition happened, and when all those people started to say those lovely things and and bring attention to me. I had something sort of worthwhile. You know, I was, I was at the beginning of this new direction that I've, I've, I'm, still, I'm still in now. And so again, lucky, just like at the beginning, this lucky moment where I was just in the right place at the right time when that, when that attention arrived. And it, it made a huge difference. And so I, I was absolutely bottomed out with machine and so nowhere, absolutely nowhere. And then a few years after that, you, you just saw it turn. And it started to lift up again. And, and every album I've done since then has done better than the one before. So it's been this fantastic, very gentle, not a meteoric rise or anything, but it's gentle, slow climb back to some sort of degree of success and recognition. And I'm incredibly grateful. <laughs> We're great to have had you on, Gary. Yeah, that, yeah what a, that was a lovely place to end. Pleasure to have you on. Really, really lovely to talk to you, Gary. Thank you oh, so it's much. Great. It's, it's great to speak to you. I can't believe you've not tried a lot of times before. Exactly. And when, when, when you're back in London or we're over there, we must meet up. Yeah. yeah. All right, mate. All right. Be good. I'll see you again. Well, that was very fulsome. Yes. You know, when I found his self-doubt quite touching, um, and I knew exactly what he, I know exactly what he means, you know. When you make a record, you're, 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 you don't know whether it's your ears that are listening to the record or the audience you're hoping to get ears that are listening to the record and you're full of all of those voices that are going on all the time and he, he really admits it yeah but what's interesting because you were talking about the thing of, about being a solo artist and that's and not being in a gang not having that thing but of course and for some reason that made me think of this interesting almost uniquely 80s thing of there were so many duos which is almost a, if that's a way of sort of being halfway between a band and a solo artist yeah i just think i think that bravery of putting yourself out as front of as a as a solo artist was was um was seen as being too confident which is ironic because the guy obviously wasn't no so and the amount of stick he got you know was funny enough i i mentioned that we were talking to him to johnny ma the other day always like to get his thoughts on everything and he just said oh yeah guy i always got the impression that the press was so hard on him but he's genuinely held in really high regard by all music lovers yeah, of course. But not my generation who were bitter and twisted. <laughs> yeah, no, you hated everyone, yeah. Because he had a better tie. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony Price, I remember it was Anthony Price the tie he used to wear. I had the same one. We, uh, that was enjoyable. And I hope you guys uh, like that too. We are, we're going to be back next week with someone else equally as brilliant and as fascinating to talk to. So please subscribe if you haven't already.
Yeah, and leave those reviews and whatever. I mean, well, I don't know. We've got loads of lovely reviews, so thank you for yeah, those. Thank you for those. Amazing. I, I mean, I don't like reading them in case I read the bad one, but... <laughs> yeah. But anyway, we That's are... That's always one that jumps out. Um, <laughs> all right, well, it's good night from me. And it's good night from all of us. Bye.